Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc. And it's Dr. War here, I'm your ER doc. And once again, it is time for everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club. Yay! Yay! So thanks, you guys and girls, for your feedback. I, I do listen and hear, and I promise I'm still trying to fix sound quality things, but I have no experience or background in this, so it's all just working it out as I go along. But it will get better, I promise. <laughs> I cry myself to sleep every night trying to make this better for you. <laughs> he really does. Usually I try and come up with a theme for our journal clubs, but this week there were just a lot of stories all over the place that I thought were interesting and didn't really have any connections. So we'll just kind of leap through them. As always, all the links will be put up on the Facebook page, so feel free to chime in with anything you want to know or follow up about. The first one we'll start with is something that just seemed bizarrely entertaining to me, and it has to do with giant rats. Not Splinter from Ninja Turtles, not Pizza Rat, and it has to do with disease. And, you know, rats don't have the best reputation when it comes to disease. Like, if I were to tell you, oh, look, there's a rat, what's the first thing you're thinking? Kill it! Yeah, <laughs> kill them all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you think of plague, the Black Death got blamed on rats, and we'll go over into that in another Around the World in 80 Plagues. But there's a lot of different kinds of rats with a lot of 
different kinds of lifestyles. And now giant rats are actually being used in Belgium, of all places, to detect tuberculosis. Detect and prevent with a large amount of success. And they've specifically, this is going to sound a lot worse than it is, but they have specifically turned their noses to sniffing out tuberculosis in East African prisons. <laughs> wow. It doesn't sound great, I'll admit. But well, it sounds about right. If I learn anything from Ratatouille, they do have exquisite tastes and a refined palate. So if well, Ratatouille... <laughs> Remember, that was just Remy, though. His... His rest of the family and the other rats were oh, yeah. having quite a bit of trouble. Yeah, exactly. They they didn't have the same zest that Remy did. Remy did yeah. have training as a chef, you're right. <laughs> you know, Ward, I'm so glad you brought that up because these rats, first off, I would think if you see rats in a prison, you'd expect to, but they wouldn't be part of the staff. However, <laughs> in Morogoro... Tanzania, there are 50 fully qualified African giant pouched rats that have undergone up to nine months of training. That's more training than I did as an EMT, by the way, back in the late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> that was a six-month course. Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> now, the rats do need more training than humans to figure out a, a particular disease like this. But one really good reason why the environment, even though it sounds gross or whatever, it's very, very important, is because you want to start in a place where the disease is highly prevalent so that your chances of false negatives and false positives go down. As the disease is more prevalent, then the easier it is to optimize a particular test. That's why, for instance, when we have biochemical tests for tuberculosis or, say, something like an ELISA or another diagnostic test, which requires like a blood draw or something like this, it's always best to start in Eastern Africa, where tuberculosis is much more prevalent than it is here. So the environment makes a lot of sense. The other thing is these rats seem to be fantastic for just about everything that requires smell. I don't know if you guys remember, but a little while back, these same pouched rats were used also. To, they can sniff out the explosive material in things like landmines. So in areas where... There are old landmines still buried. Think about Vietnam and Cambodia. These little guys can be used, and they will sniff out the explosive material, but they won't set off the mine. So even before we were using them to sniff out disease, their sense of smell has been exploited for little animals. Um, but from the infectious diseases side, occasionally they do carry... Um, <laughs> monkeypox. Well, the rat pox, perhaps, I don't know, but I know monkeypox is important because we can catch it, we humans, which is uh, a relative of smallpox, which thankfully we've eradicated. So you may be wondering what a fully qualified nine-month trained rat does. I, I certainly was. <laughs> right? Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the process starts by collecting samples of phlegm and mucus. The samples are then put into a heated <laughs> autoclave, 
or basically an oven, and that kills any potential pathogens that could harm the rats or handlers, right? You just want to find tuberculosis. You don't want to infect the rats with something else and have them carry the disease. Rats are then put in front of a lineup of samples. It's almost like a police lineup, and they get a whole bunch of tiny little plates that have been autoclaved with phlegm from all these different people, and if they hover over a sample for more than three seconds, the sample is suggested to contain TB and is then sent off to a human lab for further analysis. So you do still involve a human, but this is quicker and cheaper than conventional means because you're just putting a lab, a bunch of different lab slides in front of a rat and seeing which ones it pauses to go, hmm, need salt or excellent <laughs> aroma. <laughs> and the, the company, Apopo, which stands for something in Belgium that I can't pronounce, is that says the accuracy of the rats is actually close to 100%, but it, the rats can't distinguish between normal and drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis, sure. but they can tell tuberculosis from non-tuberculosis. Mycobacteria that are not TB, then? Correct. Sure. Well, you know, interesting that uh, you, you said it's a, they, they said need salt. An autoclave is essentially a big oven, and it is like you pulled out a dish of the day, and they just go through the minor. <laughs> so you and think Ratatouille you know, is hiding in the scientist's lab coats? <laughs> there, there is a chance. And, you know, for a human to do this, correct me if I'm wrong, Santosh, but you have to actually stain them and do the, do the acid fast stain. Actually a pretty labor and time-intensive procedure. Well, not only a labor and time-intensive procedure, but it takes training on the part of the technician who's reading the slide. So if you hack up a bunch of phlegm or you take a biopsy and you do an acid-fast stain, that means the person who's reading the slide has to be skilled enough to catch those little bacilli after looking at X number of microscopic fields. And sometimes they'll say something like 100 high-powered fields. That means that if you switch the microscope up to a high power and you scan through it, you scan through a hundred of them, and then you say, do I see a little bacillus or a little bacteria or do I not? So that does mean you need a trained human as well. So anything that we do requires training either on the part of the rat or on the part of the human. Nothing is just a, you know, you put it in the machine and it goes. We do now have PCR where we can amplify and detect the DNA of these bacteria in samples like sputum. And that's even more accurate and less technically involved because a lot of the time you just add a drop of reagent and you add a drop of the, you know, the digested phlegm so that it's, the DNA comes out and you, you go ahead and run it. But, that also means it's more expensive. So the little pouch rat is a fantastic screening test for now. And as things progress and we get more and more data, it may be that they're even better than conventional means, but that needs to be seen in the future. I just like the idea that they also want to expand these rats out to shanty towns, factories, and, and I'm just picturing you're in some wandering through some part of the country and you see a giant rat run by and instead of going oh no yuck a rat you go like local doctor 
It would be, and sometimes, you know, they're on a little leash because these are giant rats. They are about the size of some small dogs that you see around Beverly Hills, and in my opinion, more useful. This is certainly not the first time that animals have been used to sniff out disease. We've got pilot programs even here in the United States where dogs are trained to sniff out certain types of cancer. So the sense of smell is a wonderful thing to exploit. And so far, we have not been able to replicate this really wondrous feat that nature has kind of prepackaged in the noses of our animal friends. There's one that's not really medically related, but still very interesting to me is training bees and wasps to detect things. Because usually you think of wasps as just tiny little assholes who sting you and really <laughs> serve no no good purpose to society. They're <laughs> right up there. I mean, bees pollinate and make sure all our flowers and things grow. Wasps and mosquitoes, nobody needs them. Scientists don't know why they're here. Well, traditionally, wasps are very polite, though. They say, pass the salt. And they don't talk about each other. No, no, little yellow insect, not uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Oh, oh, (laughs) <laughs> well, one one of the studies that I was reading, and we've actually briefly mentioned before, is that drug-sniffing wasps and bomb-sniffing wasps are being trained to provide airport and police security. Now, this is not, you know, a policeman walking around the airport with a bunch of wasps on a leash. Right. Like, <laughs> What they do is they train a group of wasps to recognize these scents for food, and then they put three or four wasps in a tiny little bottle or test tube with some holes and carry them around. And when the wasps get sniff bombs or drugs or whatever it is they've been trained to detect, they get agitated and will buzz around the bottle, and then the police can kind of zero in and look for how agitated they get playing the weirdest game of you know, red light, green light, or getting warmer, getting cooler that you have ever seen. I don't know that I would feel any safer if I saw a bunch of wasps at LAX. (laughs) What they do is they use chemosensory organs, which are a lot like noses, in order to track where they're going, etc. Maybe, you know, we've had bomb-sniffing dogs for the longest time, and... They're superior to a lot of technologies. Are they just more sensitive and more reliable than the dogs? Is that why we're using wasps and bees? I have not read enough about the uh, wasps or the to to know that one. Well, it can't be because they're cuter or friendlier because they're not, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess it's a better deterrent. If I were a terrorist, I sure as hell wouldn't want to go up. I'd be like a dog. I can give you know a tranquilized bone. That's what all the movies do. But what are you going to give to distract a bunch of wasps? Jar of honey? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd, you'd have to... You'd, usually it's going to be something sugar uh, for, for well, a wasp. In Tanzania, while we were speaking of Tanzania, we did lure a bunch of wasps, wasps into my cup with a little bit of Diet Coke and then trap them. Uh, why, True. though? Because they were bothering us during lunch. Oh, you weren't trying to attract them. You were trying to sequester them. No, they were plenty attracted. Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) I would say that a little wasp could fit into 
crevices and such where a dog couldn't get his nose in. Well, it says the advantages and disadvantages, and this is via NPR, is that you can use them, you can produce wasps by the thousands or more, and you can train them quickly and use them in a pretty disposable fashion. You know, unlike dogs, where you, you can't just pick any dog off the street and instantly turn it into a bomb sniffer. Not all breeds are suited for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my my dog personally is a tiny little ADD. Like, you know, <laughs> she all you have to do is throw something in a general direction, and she'll be like, was that a bomb, squirrel, what? <laughs> um, was it a feather? So, it could have been a feather. Bark, 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 yeah. bark. So the wasps can be produced inexpensively, trained quickly, and even though they don't live long, you can make thousands of them, so who cares? Sure. Certainly this is not something that we are going to implement anytime soon, but in countries that have a much higher insect-to-dog ratio, this may be what you begin to see is police carrying little bottles full of wasps and bees to screen for drugs and bombs. Yay! For our next story, are either of you familiar with with this landmark surgery that recently took place? I had heard about it because, of course, it's in the infectious diseases community. Over at John Hopkins, two surgeons have performed the first two transplants of HIV-infected organs. So they took an HIV, they took a liver and kidney from an HIV-positive person, and then gave it to another HIV-positive person. And part of the reason this is so historic, because we've had liver and kidney transplants before, and while difficult, there's nothing earth-shattering about them at the moment, the difference is that by allowing HIV-infected organs to be put into the transplant pool, it's a historic precedent that will help to alleviate the ongoing organ shortage and will also kind of opens up the way to using transplants involving other chronic diseases. So, Santo, if you're the infectious disease doc, Yay. people may be wondering, why would I want an HIV organ? So can, <laughs> you, can you please <laughs> sure. do us the honor of educating us as to why that is not actually true? Absolutely. So there was always a fear when transplanting organs from HIV-positive individuals who were willing to donate and were in a situation to donate, meaning they got into, say, a motorcycle accident or a car accident or for whatever reason they were brain dead but still able to donate, the, the HIV that they had can certainly be transmitted through organ transplant, especially through what, what are called heavily lymphoid organs or organs that contain a lot of lymph nodes. So, for instance, the intestines. So you don't want to give that to someone who is HIV negative. You may not even want to give it to someone who is HIV positive because we do have different strains of HIV which are circulating, which have different patterns of infection, some which may have gained resistance to an HIV regimen through various mutations. So you don't want to all of a sudden introduce HIV to somebody who's had HIV, who had a regimen who worked that worked, and then all of a sudden they're getting a new strain of HIV and perhaps even immune suppression so they don't reject the organ outright. So this was 
one of the first trials approved at Johns Hopkins, which is an amazing AIDS center on the East Coast in Baltimore, Maryland. A surgeon went in, uh, Dr. Doriel Segev, and he went ahead and transplanted two different recipients. And we are going to observe these patients and see how they do and make sure that now that once theoretical risk that we were talking about of giving a new HIV strain to someone who already has HIV, is that going to be all right, etc.? So we're going to watch for all the normal things that happens when a person receives an organ transplant, such as rejection and things like graft versus host, where the immune cells from the grafted organ can affect the host, the recipient. But we will also watch the HIV status of the recipients to see how they do. If they do well, and the longer and longer they do well, the more confidence that we're going to have that as long as we do enough background into the donor and the recipient, that perhaps, yes, an HIV-positive recipient can receive a organ, a solid organ, from an HIV-positive donor. Right. So most importantly, if you do not already have HIV, nobody is giving you HIV organs. <laughs> All right? That is, I know that is the first thing people sure. are going to be freaking not out Not even about. kind of, yeah. Probably beyond the scope of Gizmodo, but you can <laughs> test which strain. No, no, no. I mean, you can t- test which strain of HIV a person has, both on, the end, of the, both on the end of the recipient as well as the donor. And that is not that complicated. Right, and checking for resistance is just as easy. So all of these technologies are in place, and we're talking about a very sophisticated center where all of this biochemical and microbiological testing is done, as well as HLA, or human leukocyte antigen testing, to make sure that the transplant goes off with as few complications as possible. And I'm sure a massive amount of counseling on the part of the recipient and the doctors to make sure everyone involved understands what is going on, what the risks are, and what the pros are to going forward with this kind of a surgery. And this ends a 25-year stretch where it was illegal in the U.S. to use HIV-positive organs for transplants. You know, and HIV is by no means just the kind of disease you can shrug off, but it is not quite the killer it was in the 80s. And now you'll see, you know, doctors and nurses and HIV patients will come into the hospital and they'll be like, oh, okay, you know, we just need to continue following precautions, whereas, you know, 20 years ago it would be like, HIV, what if I turn into an alien? Or, you know, (laughs) can it be caught by sneezing or hugging? Um, Which were legitimate questions people asked when this disease was first introduced. Now, Now you give a doctor a choice between a patient with HIV and a patient with scabies, and 100% of the time, docs will want to treat the HIV person. (laughs) Because if the person with HIV holds on to their regimen, there is a high percentage chance that they'll lead a completely normal life. Whereas that person with scabies, they might not ever get rid of the scabies. Well, yeah, then also if you hug the person with scabies, you will get scabies. You will absolutely (laughs) get scabies. scabies. (laughs) That question has been answered. It's nice to see that we've got a precedent to really hopefully one day put an end to organ donation shortages and say, okay, well, 
you may have hepatitis and HIV, but you're on a waiting list and you can still get an organ because now it's not everybody competing for that same small limited pool. We can open up different pools of organs. And, you know, can I just say that this is actually a, a sign that medical science has been advanced a lot. People are living longer and longer. You know, the reason there, that there, there are so many people on the transplant waiting list, partially at least, is because, well, we, we are able to treat chronic diseases and keep them alive long enough to be on these transplant waiting lists to begin with. I mean, these are, these are generally incredibly sick people, you know, people on dialysis, people with end-stage liver failure. Medical science has advanced enough where we're keeping these patients alive. This is, this is a good direction for us to be going in, but stay tuned because there's a lot of science that still needs to be done in order to make sure that we're very kind of goose-stepping in the right direction and not harming anyone with these decisions. If you guys remember from the last journal club we did, uh, where we talked about Skynet and the resistance, we found there were a couple different computer programs that doctors were training to basically replace themselves, including a death certificate app. Such a bad idea. Which, such Sorry. a bad commentary. <laughs> yeah, and teaching computers about what kinds of cancers were most terrible for humans. So giving computers the re- access to our medical records uh, and letting it scroll through and find cancer links. Yes, because so, our handle on computer security is just that good. <laughs> so, so training up Skynet. Well, the next story is another artificial intelligence story. And look, guys, I love my zombie stories and The Walking Dead and things like that. But much like Bill Gates and Elon Musk, I have a deep-seated distrust of intelligent robots. So I always worry when I see some of these technology stories that are like, let's replace people with robots. (laughs) Well, the next one is another international story, and it's in Zambia. And Africa does not have the same distrustful view of technology that I do. And they are getting a bunch of people to get health advice via text message. So for a lot of people in Zambia with health queries, you can't really just call up your local doctor who may live three or four villages away. Mm-hmm. You You know, you can't go to your local internet cafe or family practice clinic because they may not have any resources. And let's face it, life in Africa is hard no matter how you slice it. But everybody has a cell phone. And usually, if you send a text message, it will be answered. So based on this idea, UNICEF set up a SMS-based text service that will answer health questions it's called You Report. It's run by volunteers and receives about a thousand questions a month, many of them specifically about HIV and AIDS. It's the volume of messages has tripled in the last three years as more people find out about this service and the volunteers can't keep up. So, and here's where it starts getting scary, UNICEF is testing software that reads and responds to many of the messages automatically. Oh, dear. Okay, so rather than a human sitting on the other end, 
it'll it'll kind of read the text of the message and say, oh, I understand that this person is asking like a frequently asked question, uh, a question that many, many people have asked before. And so... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, I already know the answer. It's pretty straightforward. And it may be a form answer, such as, you know, can you get HIV from kissing? And it will generate a simple no and just, you know, facts about HIV transmission, you know, maybe like a three-liner. It's kind of like a smart robo-texting, right? Yeah, of course, when you think of smart robo-texting, let me bring to mind two examples uh, before we get into the rest of the story. The first one is, did you ever have AOL Instant Messenger when you were younger? Oh, AIM, oh, yeah. Amy, yeah. hey, get on AIM, jump on AIM. Yeah. Uh, AOL was the beginning of the people's internet for all you kids out there. It's it's when we still had to dial up. <laughs> but, oh, the okay. sounds of that modem. Oh, wait, wait. Who feels like a nostalgia flashback? <laughs> you know, yeah. that brings me back to a good place, actually. Uh, the year 1998. The young boy sitting in... Okay, go ahead. So, yeah, your young boy sitting in, and do you remember Smarter Child, the AIM conversation bot, who you could talk to if you didn't have enough friends with Internet but wanted to just chat online? Well, that sounds <laughs> creepy. No. I no, don't remember this. That? No. Smarter Child was AIM's first foray into artificial intelligence, and it could hold very simple – it could do about what, you know, early models of Siri could do now. If you gave it – a question, it could give you one of X number of form responses. And if you were really good, you could throw it into paradox loops. Oh, okay. That was the old... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all a chat window, but yes. You could get it to insult its own mother and <laughs> question the nature of existence. and You know, lots of fun if you were bored. Yay. And then you have, well, who was our more recent example of artificial intelligence? I believe her name was Tay, 
the <laughs> artificial teenager yes. who Microsoft released, who after twenty less than twenty four hours turned into a Nazi sex bot on on Twitter. Yes, on Twitter, absolutely ruined this robot. The internet population in general, who turned a teenager artificial intelligence into a Nazi sex bot. I can't imagine <laughs> Tay on the other end of an iPhone giving out advice to people. Wait, <laughs> right? Hold on. Hold you've got you've got AIDS, Major Lull. <laughs> you know, I no no no. But I I I'm thinking that I don't want to be white this... power. So Tay was a learning robot, right? So it was a very, it was a rather complex artificial intelligence that learned from the responses it got on Twitter and changed its repertoire accordingly. Now, purportedly, this little bot is not going to be like that. If it recognizes a very particular pattern in a question, it will return a form answer. I don't know that this thing will have any kind of learning algorithm. It does. It Let says me... here it uses a machine learning algorithm, but to only sort messages into eight simple categories. So symptoms, HIV testing, treatment, pregnancy, transmission, prevention, def- definition, and male circumcision of all things. Yeah, male circumcision. No, no. Um, well, male circumcision is important because several tests have been done in HIV highly prevalent areas which have shown a correlation between circumcised males and decreased right, transmission. Right. So right. that is an important thing to think about in a highly prevalent area with respect to HIV. But, see, if you just categorize them and you're you're just kind of sorting the questions and returning a form answer according to that, that's much less than actually trying to figure out new information um, and coming up with new responses. So I hope the scope of that learning algorithm stays narrow for now. Well, they gave each category 50 messages that had been selected by hand mm-hmm. and asked the program to identify patterns that it could then use to do the sorting itself. Okay. It also taught it how to handle typos and text speak, such as, and I wish this, this show had a video component, so, because reading it's not going to get that message across. <laughs> did, did the system learn how to in- correctly interpret that text? It looks Based like they on did, this report, right? it does look like, yeah, it will help. It So they tested the system on 60,000 messages recently, and it found it relatively accurate and fast. And the rapid classification lets staff see what topics people are concerned about, and they use that information to update the frequently asked question section of its website. So not really responding to people's text messages, but updating the website and hopefully fewer people will be texting the volunteers and reducing their workload. Sure. Awesome. So they're now working on automating the sending of standard answers to the most common questions with links that will include health information the user may not be aware of. And that can be followed up by a specific response from a human. Right. Very, very nice. Yeah. And this is something that's been used for a long time, for instance, when you are working at a call center, for instance, and you are at a call center for an insurance company, and someone 
who is receiving the call wants the messages sorted by, oh, okay, I need customer service or I need help with the online tool or I need help with a deductible or settling a claim, this is the same type of machine learning that happens. So there is experience with this kind of data tracking and analysis. I I think it has a lot of potential. I just don't want to see, you know, a bunch of people in Zambia turned into Nazi Nazi sex bots or <laughs> or AIM robot children. Right. Or or even the the program itself turned into a Nazi sex bot. Yeah. So technology is great as a enhancement tool, mm-hmm. and I am all for becoming cyborgs, but <laughs> giving power to robots is where I draw the line. <laughs> well said. Yes. So the next story is actually one that I think, uh, Ward, you are probably best qualified to speak on, because as much as I deal with pain control is an internal medicine doc, you have to deal with it infinitely more as the first line of defense in the hospital. And this this next story is, to use a terrible pun, no laughing matter. That's right. Um, the title of that article was No Joke. Uh, New Jersey Hospital Uses Laughing Gas to Cut Down on Opioid Use. Our country is in an opiate epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, President Obama recently just uh, talked about it, and um, there, are, there are new CDC guidelines on how to prescribe opiates. And I think it was a couple of years ago when deaths from overdoses finally surpassed car accident deaths as well as firearm deaths. Wow. Yeah. So, and you know, unfortunately, these are all legal prescribed Drugs. They're not street drugs. They're not um, recreational drugs, and um, we all heard. Or they're about not it. drugs intended for recreation. They're not drugs intended for recreation, and uh, you know we have a huge chronic pain issue in this country as well. One in three American, according to according to some studies, has chronic pain. We are. We've all heard about it in the news. You know, Whitney, Whitney, Michael. Oh, who was that? actor who won the Oscar and Heath Ledger and, oh, Hoffman. His last name was Hoffman. Um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman, absolutely, yeah. These are I just know. talented actors who are in the limelight, but think about everyone else who didn't get um, a line in the newspaper, you know, a line uh, in the news. Mm-hmm. And just to give you guys an idea of how much opiates we consume, Americans comprise of about 5% of the world's population. And we use up up to 80% of the global opiate supply. We use up 99% of uh, the global hydrocodone supply. That's a lot. That is a wow. lot. I knew we used a lot, but I was like, uh, I was a little surprised <laughs> even when I, when I read those numbers. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, where are these, who are the prescribers? Well, you know, I used to think EDs just handed out pills like candy, you know, candy panes. It's actually not the case. 50% of that came from, um, according to a San Diego County study, 50% came from, you know, the primary care doctors in the clinics. Mm-hmm. And emergency departments give out 20%, which is a big chunk. So it looks like this hospital in New Jersey is trying a new approach to use alternatives to opiates to deal with pain. 
Laughing gas, which is nitrous oxide, is something that, you know, dentists use to relax their patients and kind of do a little sedation for procedures, and that can work in certain situations. And then instead of highly addictive opiates, non-steroidal inflammatories, Tylenol, lidocaine, numbing medications, those are being tried in place of opiates because opiates down to its core is an incredibly, incredibly addictive medication in all forms, in the IV form, in, you know, pill form, in, in a shot form. In fact, opium was the original opiate. That's where the name came from. We all know how that went. <laughs> how that's still going. And, and if you don't know, the answer is not well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Still going, still going. And it, this is a, I'd say a holdover or a part of any neurobiology of almost every single creature that we know that opioids do latch on to these pleasure receptors in the brain and they release immense amounts of, you know, happy, happy chemicals <laughs> when they get there. So it's not surprising at all that they're easy to become addicted to. There are other ways to get around this, aside from using al alternative drugs. We have talked a little bit about this in some of our alternative medicine podcasts where we've discussed yoga, and I believe, Josh, we're going to be talking about chiropractic as well for pain relief, especially in the back. Mm-hmm. So there are alternatives which are both medical and non-medical for pain control. There are also scientists working on opiates that are not so addictive, so altering the chemical structure of these opioid drugs so that they still kill pain, but they're not as addictive. So there are many ways to tackle this problem, but finding an alternative such as laughing gas, which is easy to manufacture, relatively easy to supply, but not terribly easy for, for instance, for a user to get to because you need to haul around a giant tank. So that's much harder than finding a little rock or a needle. So laughing gas is a, is a really wonderful alternative if we find it to be as safe and effective as opioids. And here's the problem. You know, we can sit there and, and blame doctors and ERs for over-prescribing, but there has been, over the last 15, 20 years, a shift in personal responsibility for health, and hospitals are feeling that, and a lot of hospital funding is very often tied to what are called press-gainy press scores, which are related to patient satisfaction. And if you have low patient satisfaction, which you can think of as bad Yelp reviews, <laughs> then, and sometimes if you have bad Yelp reviews. Yeah, yeah, oh the, yeah. Or some of the others, like health grades, absolutely. Yeah. Then the hospital says, oh, well, you know, your patients aren't happy, they're less satisfied, we're not going to give you as much funding. And in order to keep people happy, sometimes physicians will be, they more inclined to give medications that aren't really, strictly speaking, necessary, whether it's a antibiotic for a viral disease or whether it's an opioid for chronic pain. And, you know, this is, as a pain and palliative hospitalist, 
you know, pain and palliative focused hospitalist, I have to say, my job as a doctor is not to make you happy. It is not to get you ready for the next Olympics, and it's not to have you skipping down the street high as a kite. It is to make you better than you originally came to me. And as long as we have physicians who will allow themselves being intimidated into using opioids, if opioids are not necessary, we're going to continue to see a lot of new addicts being created. You know, we're actually learning, we're becoming a lot more sophisticated nowadays in our um, approach to pain. I think back in the days when um, 80s and 90s, we were all being told that, hey, we're under-treating pain because of something, oh gosh, you all know this, the pain score, right? Mm-hmm. People who oh, yeah. rank a nine, yep. there are people who tell me I have a pain score a hundred, a thousand on a one to ten scale, and I tell them <laughs> it's one to ten. Um, <laughs> that pain scale is not, it doesn't tell the whole story. Someone sure. with a bone sticking out, someone with a fracture, someone with appendicitis, yeah, you need to give that person some pain medicine like opiates. On the other hand, let me ask you a personal question. Let's say, imagine if, you're, if your mother passed away. Rank that pain scale on zero to ten. I mean, what would you rank it, right? I would, you know, it would be off the charts. But in that instance, giving that person opiates is not the right thing to do. So pain is kind of a complex symptom, and just throwing one medication at it will result in harming, potentially harming that person and getting a person addicted. There's pain of addiction. There's pain of depression. There's pain in a lot of other symptoms and diseases that go on that you should not be given opiates and rather, you know, you should deal with the root cause of that problem. I I like the idea that they're encouraging hospitals to find alternatives for pain, whether it's laughing gas, acupuncture, biofeedback, yoga, any one of a number of things that all are very good on dealing with chronic pain. And as, as you mentioned, Santosh, we do have a few upcoming episodes where we will speak to experts in some of these alternative fields, and hopefully they'll be able to give us or shed some light on other pain control methods. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that we are going to give up on opiates entirely, just that we need to be a little bit more discerning in who we give them to and how often. Yeah, they say, in fact, the the chair of that hospital says, we are not opiate-free. It's just that they are using whatever pain medication that's adequate and appropriate for the situation. And that that covers all our actual science, but there is just one article I, I put up on the webpage, on the Facebook page, because it was... I, I laughed so hard that I thought it was an April Fool's Day prank. And Santos, you even brought it to my attention. You're like, really? This is what you're posting? And, <laughs> And, and Ward, I don't know if you had seen this, but uh, PETA yeah, just made so, yeah. a very interesting claim about mm. what eating chicken <laughs> will do to you. Did, did you get a chance to look at this? Because I, uh, No, I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> Googling PETA chicken. <laughs> but please, let, the, let our listeners know, what, what, is PETA, what is PETA claiming? So PETA, of course, being the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, and <laughs> they, 
how, how best to phrase this? People become vegetarians for a lot of reasons. Some are concerned about animal welfare. Some are concerned about the environment. Some are concerned about their health. Well, how about anxieties of your unborn child's penis? <laughs> That's the message. I remember. Peta, that is the message that PETA posted to Facebook in a video called, literally, Eating Chicken Can Make Your Kid's Dick Small. Yes. yes. That is a low blow, PETA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it gets better. According, because I watched the video because I couldn't help myself. Sure. I said, sure. no. No, I need to do this for our listening audience. They deserve to know the truth. <laughs> and according to the video, a chemical called phthalate, which is a family of chemicals used in plastics, paints, and packaging, leads to male children being born with a smaller penis. And then the video says that these same phthalates have been found in chicken flesh. And in their words, not mine, in their mm -hmm. words, the more chicken consumed, the smaller the dick. <laughs> oh, boy. Of, now, this, I, I looked up this study because, I, how could you not? Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's referring to a 2008 report by the National Institute of Health where the report manuscript itself doesn't make any explicit link between chicken and a child's penis size or any reference to chicken at all. Not even a little. It yeah. simply said that people might come into contact with these chemicals in indoor environments, and it's also been measured in food, milk, and drinking water, but the relative contribution is unknown. So in this study, in their own study that they said, it says out of the 106 boys looked at, all of the 29 deemed to be on the shorter end of the spectrum had mothers who were above a quote-unquote, low level of phthalate exposure. In the longer 28 penises, and I want to know who was measuring <laughs> child penises yeah. for this. Uh, mm -hmm. Penesia? Louis C.K. used to call it Penesia. The Penesia. <laughs> only one of their mothers had a high level. They summarized these findings warrant concerns that phthalate exposures may affect several markers of human genital development. Uh, however, there is no direct correlation between how much chicken a mother eats and the size of a child's penis. Nope, not even kind of. And so this is a horrible exaggeration. You know, I, I kind of like PETA. They, they watch out for the welfare of animals. They're good people. I'm a vegetarian. I know they're pissed at me because I'm not a vegan. Um... But uh, <laughs> they go overboard. They really and truly do. And when you get into exaggerating scientific fact and skewing it to just forward your agenda, you are wrong. And that's a terrible thing to do. So, PETA, if you're listening, cut it out. There are way, way better ways to turn people to vegetarianism than to threaten them with the size of their baby unborn oh baby. Than to shrink the penises yeah. of their unborn children. <laughs> Which is, it doesn't even happen, for the love of peace. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And ordinarily that would deserve no place in our podcast, except... It was right around April Fool's, and that story was too good to not report on. The story itself is not a joke. Peter really did put this video out, but 
I found it incredibly amusing and felt the need to share. You know, I, now I have a very disturbing image of Colonel Sanders. Holy <laughs> 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 that buck the chicken. <laughs> like, oh, boy. <laughs> Just a tiny... Sanders. Yeah. Norm MacDonald as Colonel Sanders holding the thing with the horrible accent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now it's Jim Gaffigan. Oh, that's right. They they switched comedians. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, that that wraps up this week's Journal Club. <laughs> A couple great stories. We we started with rats. We ended with chicken, and we went to a few interesting places in between. So, hopefully, you enjoyed. As always, we welcome. Any comments, concerns, or questions, we love your feedback. You can reach us on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Travel Medicine Podcast. We are on Twitter. We will respond to you on Twitter, on Facebook, and on the webpage. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshi for Award is at Travel and Medicine. We love to hear from you. Please send us any future thoughts, questions, deep concerns about chicken and genital length. <laughs> And by the way, guys, on our Facebook page, you know, if you want to post stories that you want to hear about or you want us to review something, we love doing that kind of a thing. So, yeah, please do look for, you know, send us uh, anything that you think we skipped this week and you'd like to hear more about. Yes, I I love reading journal articles. I really do. It's disturbing how much sometimes. No, it's good. It's good. Yeah, they're not all as fun as that PETA article. <laughs> no, no, that's how I get the lighthearted ones yeah. in between all the serious studies. Sure, sure. Our theme music is composed by the talented Rachel Leisure, who, honestly, I don't even know if she listens to our show anymore now that she got her credits in, but you should all go listen to her work. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that for this time, that about wraps it up. And Santos, do you have any shout-outs you want to give? I'm good uh, for right now. I will be coming back around um, maybe next week or the week after, Josh. I'd love to go over a few articles with you, but I'm, I have now gotten a journal watch to Science and Cell and Nature, which are some of my favorite journals to read. So hopefully we'll be ramping up some of our uh, journal club stuff. I'll be doing um, kind of a more thorough review and getting our more medically relevant articles out of there. But um, I, I'm going to be a bit careful about it because a lot of these are in early stages of development and I don't want to make any generalizations out of a single study. So watch for those in Santosh's Science Corner which will be upcoming segments where Santos will actually just go in detail into one particular study If for those of you who are more academically minded. <laughs> um, or go watch Dr. Ward do improv if you are somewhere on the West Coast. We won't say where because <laughs> yes. I'm not allowed to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just say hi. <laughs> just say hi. Yeah. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Travels.
Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.